Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would use it this morning to teach us and lead us into truth, lead us into righteousness, help us understand the good news of Jesus. And moreover, uh, that we would see in the text just how important it is for us to watch the way that we speak with each other. Um, I also, Lord, I pray for uh, Catawba Baptist this morning. I thank you for Pastor Ron. I thank you for his longevity there as he loves and serves that church. I pray that you continue to bless him and use them there. We pray that that many people come to know Christ through that church, God. Thank you for them. Thank you for their gospel witness in the city. And Lord, uh, we pray that you continue to bless them for many years to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I'm just going to read two verses today. We're just going to look at two verses. I'm finishing up last week. So last week we looked at part one. This week we're going to look at part two. So if if you're able, we stand when we read the Bible here. So let's stand. I'm going to start in James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. 11 and 12. After I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. Of course, you're thanking God. He gives us his word. But also let that be for you a place where you say, all the things that I hear, Lord, I want to say yes to and I want to obey. Starting in James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So as I said, this sermon is a part two. It's a continuation of last week. And so last week we started in chapter 313 and we went down to 410. And so as we were looking at last week, I said that last week was really a three-part sermon. And so we looked at part one and part two, uh, and then today we're going to look at, at section three, and that's just two verses. So just as a reminder of what the, the outline looked like, we're talking about pursuing holiness. As we said many times, the, the way that James writes, to, writes this book is just straight at you, tell it like it is, no holds barred, here's what you need to do. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. You want practical stuff, here they are. Just do these things, and when you do these things, that's what God wants because you're, you're, you're living like a Christian. Um, so that's, that's James style as he writes. And so, um, he's talking about in three thirteen down to four twelve. he's talking about pursuing holiness and what pursuing holiness looks like. So in chapter three, 13 through 18, in that section, he juxtaposes worldly wisdom with godly wisdom and helps us understand the difference between what worldly wisdom. And that sounds like an oxymoron worldly wisdom. Uh, how can it be worldly wisdom? Well, there's, there's wisdom from above and there's wisdom that, that doesn't come from above. And so it would seems to look like wisdom is not. Uh, and as we saw that, and, and you can go ahead and put up number one there. It, is, it describes worldly wisdom in 14 through 16 and it's end and result. It's, it's not good. You can see that it's demonic. It's unspiritual. It's jealous. It's selfish. It, there's, there's all kinds of things that it does. It, when it's practiced, there's disorder, uh, etc. So it looks smart, but it's not. It looks wise, but it's not. And then Juxtaposed to that, we see godly wisdom, and that's in those second sections. And as he's talking about that, and he's telling us that we need to be the kind of people that that look towards others that are wise to help us be wise, he says um, in verse 13, he goes, who's wise? And we would normally think, well, the person that's wise is if I can look around and I can see someone that seems to have high intellectual prowess, that's how I know they're wise. And he said, that's not the case. Don't think that 
intellectualism is the key to knowing wisdom in somebody. But instead, look at how they live. Look at the conduct of their behavior. That's how you know they're wise is the way that they live. It's not necessarily intellect. You can see it in verse 13. Who's wise? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of his wisdom. So if you're looking for someone that's wise in your life to give you helpful counsel or to pattern a Christ-like type of living around, don't just think that the smartest person must be the person I should look at. No, they don't have to be smart. You know, when it comes to uh, an IQ rating, right? Instead, look at the people that love God and obey God. Those are the people that are wise. And so we saw that in, in, in 13, and that's how we can pursue holiness. Now, when we got down to chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, uh, we see what friendship with the world looks like and what friendship with God looks like. And the way that he describes it in the first five verses is there's there's... Friendship with the world, and it looks like quarrel. It looks like you're fighting. You have a desire within you, a passion, an an evil passion that grows within you. And when you want it, you don't have it met. And when it's not met, all of a sudden, that person that could have met it for you, you're angry at. And therefore, there's a a quarrel that begins. You can see it in 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights is it not that your passions, that's in a negative sense, like a sinful passion, a sinful desire, are at war within you, you desire you don't have, you murder and you covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And so you see that there's a, a beginning of uh, a fight that can happen. And that's what it looks like to be friends with the world, is to quarrel with others because you don't get your passions met, etc. And then there's lots of law that was laid down as we saw, but when you get to verse 6, uh, God through James and his infinite goodness says, that's a lot of law. Let's talk about the gospel. And then you can see the verse in verse six where it says, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Friendship with God is where we realize that we are wretched sinners and that we don't need to be friends with the world. We don't need to have our sinful desires met. Instead, we should be following after God. And it looks like understanding that we need to be forgiven of our sin and receive grace after grace after grace. And that's what pursuing holiness looks like. We can see in verse 5 what friendship with the world looks like. And then verse 6 through 10, we can see what friendship with God looks like. And so uh, last week, if you remember when I said in verse 6 is the gospel. And for those that just that are the feelers, that's all you need. Oh, grace after grace. I'm amazed by God. I love God. I can't believe it. He's so good. That's all I need. I don't need practical steps now to know how to love somebody that treats me that way. I just pursue them and love them. But for thinkers or for non-feelers, that doesn't necessarily mean that feelers are not thinkers. Uh, but uh, for those that like, I still need practical steps. Uh, show me what that looks like. James and his kindness um, shows us what that looks like. And you can see in verses seven, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, go through the acts of repentance, etc. So he even lists out what that looks like. Um, for us. And so that's what um, those first two sections that we saw of what pursuing holiness looks like. And now in the third one, he's going to juxtapose something worldly and godly, but it's going to be worldly speech and godly speech. And so uh, you can go ahead and go to number three. And that's what we're going to look at today. Worldly speech versus godly speech. And it's just in the small little section 11 and 12. And there's a lot in here and it's confusing, I think. Uh, When I first read through 11 and 12, it it took me a while. I'm slow sometimes, but it took me a while to really get what was James saying here. And what does it mean to be a judge? Because there are verses in the Bible that, that at least implicitly say that Christians are in some manner 
judging other people. You know, you can't look at a fellow brother who's caught in sin and go to them and say, I think you have this sin in your life unless you've somehow judged, right? Judged a pattern of living of what they're doing to think that's not right. And there's a way to go to them, obviously, that's correct. But he, he ends this verse with, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And then you're like, well, you know, Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not. And he says, judge not. And of course, James patterns most of this book after the Sermon on the Mount, after his brother Jesus. And so you're like, well, left there wondering, what is it? <laughs> do, I, do I judge or not? I can't get it. So we're going to talk about that. But first, let's talk about um, how uh, speech and kind of running others over with your words can happen and how easy it is to let it be a part of what's going on. So my dad, uh, he had... He had a mother. Obviously, everybody does. Happy Father's Day, by the way, everybody. I forgot. Sorry. Happy Father's Day. Um, so uh, my dad, his mother's name was Olga May. Olga May. So we couldn't name any of our kids that. Um, but nevertheless, uh, she, her husband died in the war, World War II, um, very, at the very end of World War II, 1945, uh, months before it ended. Um, before he went off to war, he looked at my, my granddad. I never met him. Looked at my grandmother and said, if I die, don't ever get remarried. Now, I have no idea why he did that. But it was a devastating thing to say. Um, and so he died in the war. Um, and she was left raising two boys by herself that were three and four. Um, and so my dad was three when his dad died. And Olga, my grandma, uh, because her husband died in the war, grew up, or, or raised my dad and his brother, just a bitter woman. She was, I heard before that, very pleasant. Right? Very pleasant. Um, she only liked three people in the world. Only liked three people in her, in her older age in the world. Me, Christy, and my mom. That was it. She was enemies with my sister. She was enemies with my dad. They always fought because there was so much alike. So anyway, um, so she had uh, a pattern of running over people close to them with her words. She didn't know how to live. And therefore, that was what was patterned to my dad. I mean, I, I, numerous times where they were called... Uh, I, even me, we're called dummy. Like you do something, what are you doing, dummy? Like eventually that's not good, right? Nevertheless, my dad grew up in that environment and then the same thing with him. So that's all he knew was his mom and that's all he was patterned to him. And so I got run over with words by my dad. And so there's this, there's this, uh, and my dad got saved way later in life. Um, and so now I, that's what's patterned with me. You know, I, I, I see that with my dad. My mom was the opposite. She never ran over him with her words ever, right? And so I have this growing up of uh, what's modeled to me and what's been modeled to me. And so I have, as you know, numerous kids who do lots of bonehead things. And so uh, whenever those things happen, in that moment, I can respond with what would be worldly speech or godly speech. The speech that's been patterned to me by both parents. And it's easy to revert back to what's easy and run over people with your words. It's so difficult to fight it. And uh, I've had numerous times where my wife has pulled me aside and corrected me after I've said something like, hey, you are not speaking in a a kind way to your children. You can't do that. They're going to remember that. Don't you remember what your dad said to you? They're going to remember it too. You've got to watch your words. And so my wife is obviously right. She's obviously right. And so I hopefully most of the time go back to him and say, I'm sorry. You know, dad's a sinner. He needs the gospel just like you. Um, please forgive me. Right. This is what we're, what James is warning us here. He's warning us as believers that your words have amazing power to the people around you to run them over or lift them up. And we don't want to have worldly speech. We want to have godly speech. 
And so as we're getting into 4.11 and 4.12, we're going to see uh, just how important it is to understand this. Now, the major section of chapter 3.1 all the way to this point um, has been about our words. And you can see um, he's, he's echoing the Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew 7, 1 through 5, as we get to this part right here. You know, in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 1, 5, he tells us to judge not lest you be judged, etc. Well, James is echoing those kind of same thoughts in 4, 11, and 12. And thus, thus far, he's talked about how we need to make sure we don't uh, misuse our tongue. And in this particular place, you can see, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And so he's, he's warning us about the misuse of our tongue, which is slandering other people. And so thus far, he's warned us about our tongue from 3-1 to this place numerous times about the way our, our, our speech can hurt people. We've seen in 3-5 um, that in 3-5 that we can use our tongue for arrogant boasting. Like, I'm awesome. Everybody should think I'm awesome in 3-5. In 3-9, he's warned us about cursing or, or bringing, you know, misusing our tongue to hurt other people's feelings in a bad way in 3.9, cursing others who are made in the image of God. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean using curse language. It just means saying mean, harmful, hurtful things towards people. He's warned us against that. In 3.14 and 16, he's warned us that we, ha- if we have jealousy, then we can lead to boasting and doing that in a wrong way. We've also seen it in 4.1 and 3 in the quarrel section that the self-centeredness in our heart is what causes us to use our tongue in a way to where we are going to argue with people and, and, and hurt people. So thus far, he's told us numerous times that we should not use our tongue in wrong ways. Now, we should stop here and just remember um, that this entire sermon is not for you to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, I'm going to start speaking like God wants. Because you're not called to do that. Jesus Christ has already done that for you. He has done this. He never slandered anybody. When people yelled at him in his face and pulled his beard and spit in him and told him to do stuff, he, he remained quiet. So our King Jesus, our Savior, is the one that has done this. And so when we go through this, your only right reaction is not to say, well, now I'm going to do it. Instead, it's to throw all of your affections and heart and trust and belief onto Jesus who has done this for you. The good news is that Christ has kept the law for us. And our only hope is not law keeping, but good news that Jesus has done it for us. Trust in Jesus, repent of your sin and say, All I need is Christ. So as we're going through this, remember, look at this through a gospel lens that Christ is not beckoning you to just try harder. Instead, he's saying, surrender. Throw all of your hope onto him. And then by the power of the spirit, you will, through Christ, keep the law. You will be more sanctified, but that's only because of Jesus, not because you just need to try harder. So we see here in verse 11, it says this, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not speak evil against one another. There's two things you should note here. This speaking evil against one another, that's called slander. That's saying things about people that you shouldn't. Even if they're true, doesn't mean that you should say them, right? And then it says brothers. And so brothers is insinuating that the command primarily, it doesn't mean it only applies to to Christians, that you can slander non-Christians. But primarily it's saying that Christians are slandering other Christians. So it's, it's happening within the household of God, which is not good. Now slander is decried 
all throughout the Bible, not just here in James, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For example, Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your own neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not reason frankly with your neighbor, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall. And here's the whole spirit of what Jesus is getting at um, is, is in Leviticus 19 verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole of the law. Another place. Psalm 15. O Lord. Who shall ascend upon your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what's right and speaks, with, speaks truth with his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. Psalm 50. You shall, give, you, shall give your mouth free, you shall not give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your mother's son. These things that you have done, I have been silent. You thought that I would... That I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. God does not want us to slander. One other. Psalm 101.5. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. New Testament. Romans 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now here's a huge list of all kinds of sinful practices. One of which is slander. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Notice that that's in the category with some pretty wretched stuff. So kids, obey your parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree, they who practice such things deserve to die. Not only those, not only do they give approval to those who practice them. Second Corinthians twelve twenty four. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And lastly, First Peter two one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. And so, even in four seven. Just in the little section, four verses above, in 4-7, it says, Draw, Submit to yourself, therefore, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That word devil in the Greek is the slanderer. The slanderer. And so, um, even when he refers to the devil, he calls him the slanderer. So, there's major warnings as we've gone through against speaking evil against your brother. Sam Alberry says it this way, Running other da- others down... And what we say is so reflexive that we barely even know that we're doing it. We barely even know that we're doing it. So, as I said, I've got bunches of kids. And um, I, I, uh, I've, I watch these movies with them. I don't know if you watch cartoon kids movies and shows. I do because, you know, that's all that we can watch. So, we're always watching it, right? And so, um, I believe that it's fed to us at such young ages that Sam Albury is right. We don't even know that we're doing it. So, if you watch kids... Uh, shows and you watch kids movies um, start watch whenever you're watching watch how the the characters interact with each other down uh, interact with each other in these movies all they do it's amazing 
All they do is run each other down in these little kids' shows. Um, whenever they speak to each other, it's always constant sarcasm. Like, not like sarcasm, like funny, but mean sarcasm. It's always put each other down. You don't know what you're doing, and I do. Now you're not smart because I am, etc. cetera. Um, so I'm not saying you can't let your kids watch cartoons. I'm still going to do it, right? It's fine. Um, but nevertheless, um, whenever we watch those things with our kids, we should try to teach them and, fi- and show them, watch how these people run each other down with their words constantly. It's so reflexive that it's the second nature they're, they're even in, at a young age sh- being shown in, the, in these shows and, and we've actually stopped some of them but nevertheless um, we should train our kids to think differently whenever they're interacting with people because it just becomes so reflective that you don't even think about it but you run it's so easy to just run each other over with your words to slander each other to gossip against each other to just Say mean, sarcastic things against each other, etc. So he's, he's warning against that. Do not speak evil against uh, one another, brothers. And then it says this. Second part of verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So this is where it's going to start getting. I was like, what? What do you mean? The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against uh, the law and judges the law. So James is making it clear here that to malign, to speak evil, to to slander a brother involves maligning and judging the law as well. The actual law that tells you not to do it. Um, whenever you do it, you're maligning and judging the law. So the law referred to here is not the legalist. It's not just the legalistic expression of the law. It actually is also understanding that it's referring to the greater law of love, which we pointed to in Leviticus 19, but it's also expressed to us in Matthew 27 and and Mark, uh, where he says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so his point of reference is in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, and chapter 6, verse 5, and then also as I read in Leviticus nineteen eighteen, And so he's, he's telling us that whenever you uh, speak slander against someone, that you actually are standing in judgment of the law because the law has told you not to do it. And you're like, I can do what I want because that guy deserves it or that guy's wrong or that girl doesn't know what she's talking about. And so you're actually speaking in judgment. So here's what it means. The law tells us not to slander or malign someone with our speech. It tells us not to do that. So if and when we determine that someone is doing some type of behavior that we find unacceptable, we hypocritically speak evil or malign them or say something against them, thus slandering the person. When we do this, we've done two things wrong. One, we slander them. Someone who's made in the image of God. We shouldn't have done that. Um, we're not loving our neighbor as we're told to in James 3, 9. But also we've decided that our view of right and wrong and our determination of law keeping is more correct than God's determination of law keeping. Thus judging the law of God as we know better. So that's when it says here, um, the one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. We're actually standing in front of the law saying, God, I got this. I got this. I know what's better than your loss. So I can speak slander against this person because they deserve it in this moment. And we're actually standing and judge against the law. Now, God gave the law, not us. So we have no clue what we're talking about if we think we know better than the Lord, right? That's what he's saying. So one commentator says, even as it was serious to break the law, it was even more so to stand in judgment on it. This is what James said one did by the action of gossip or slander, speaking evil. He added that to malign and criticize the law made one cease practicing the law because he had set himself up as a censor and a judge of it. This attitude of self 
exaltation, arrogant pride, place oneself above God himself. So that's what it means here is that you're actually trying to take the place of above God himself. So the one who speaks up against the brother or judges the brother. So when you hear judges the brother, just just hear that as making a determination that their behavior, in my view, is unacceptable and wrongly, right? So when you get to the next section, but uh, we're still in verse 11, last sentence. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. If you judge the law, if you think that you understand it better, you're not doing the law. You're actually thinking that you can look at God's laws and say, I know better. Now, we've already been told in James chapter 1, verse 22, that we are to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. So we doers of the word, doers of the law. This, this is the same thing. It's obeying Christ. So, um, therefore, whenever, if and when we slander others, we set up ourselves against the word, against obeying God's law, rather than doing it. And so, obviously, we're not doing the law. Instead, we're judging the law, which is not what we should do. Judging it. Uh, by thinking and acting that we know better than it rather than obeying it is wrong. It's totally wrong. So every time we speak evil against each other, every time you slander your spouse or your friend, you are maybe unconsciously saying, God, I actually know better than your whole law. <laughs> That's troublesome, right? That's troublesome for all of us. Me too. Because I already said, like every single one of us probably grew up in some kind of environment that was modeled to us where we're going to do it. It's reflexive to run over each other over with our words. Which means, again, in this moment we don't say, well, that's it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I don't want to set myself up against the law of God because I know better. Instead, all we do is run to Christ and say, Christ, forgive me. I, I cannot do this. Thank you, Jesus, for keeping the law for me completely. I submit myself totally to you. Now live through me so that I can do this. And you get all the glory, not me. You get all the glory, not me. So Calvin says it this way, looking at this. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Um, I just thought I'd throw in some, some uh, old school English. So we've got some claimists. Anyway, when thou claimest for thyself a power to censure or disapprove above the law of God, thou exemptest, exemptest thyself from the duty of obeying the law. In other words, if you just think that you don't have to follow the law, you get to pick your own rules, then you are saying, I don't have to follow the law. I can just do what I want. And that's, that's basically what we're doing here, as Calvin points out. Now, verse 12 tells us, you can't do that, and here's why. Verse 12. But there is only one lawgiver and judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. English stu- uh, study Bible English ESV, the elect standard version study Bible. I'm just kidding. It's not that. It's English standard. Um, It says this. When a person begins to judge the law, he is usurping the place of the one lawgiver and judge. God alone gave the the law. He alone is judge of all. And so whenever we, as it says, there's only one lawgiver and one judge. Whenever we do that, we're saying, God, I'm going to usurp that power from you. It's mine now. I'm the law. I'm I'm the judge here, not you. And we are trying to set ourselves up to do it ourselves. And obviously, we can't do that. Because God, as he says, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. That last little phrase is key. When we try to take it away from God, in essence, we're thinking, it's my power to save and destroy. And it's not. It's not any of our power to be able to do that. And so, therefore, we should submit ourselves wholly to the one who can not only destroy us, but 
amazingly, save us through Jesus. And then it says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So don't read this. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Instead, read read it this way. Who are you to judge your neighbor? A little bit changing of emphasis helps us understand that the person that slanders, the person that lives that kind of way is, well, who are you if this is how you live? It's not saying you can't. Eventually, at some point, when you're walking through life, your roommate, your college buddy, your best friend, somebody, your your spouse, somebody that you know is probably going to do something sinful and out of love, you're going to want to tell them. And so you're going to have to have some kind of predetermination in your head, i.e. a judgment. That was wrong. And you're going to have to go to them and you're going to have to say, I I think what you did here is wrong. My wife does it all the time to me and I appreciate it. I can't say, who are you to judge your neighbor? You can't say those things to me. Judge not, Matthew 7, 1, right? That would be unbiblical. And so, who are you to judge your neighbor? As in, you've got this huge two by four sticking out of your eye. Um, You should take that two by four out of your eye before you try to remove the speck from your neighbors. Matthew chapter 7. That's the point that I think he's trying to drive home here. The person that have set themselves up as God, judging his holy law, why blatantly disobeying it, how can they judge someone as a terrible hypocrite? That's the point of Matthew 7, 1. If you remember in coffee cup verses, when we looked at Matthew 7, 1, if you don't, just go back on iTunes like a month and a half ago or whatever. No, actually, gosh, that was six, five months ago. Wow, five months ago, uh, remember that the point of Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 is that the gospel of the kingdom doesn't produce judgmental hypocrites. We should not be hypocrites. We should be over and over trying to kill sin in our own life so that we're freed up to go to those that we love. So um, it, doesn't, it doesn't forbid judging completely. It doesn't forbid judge completely. Instead, it tells us that we should... Um, Think of our own sin, repent of our own sin, etc. before we go to other people. As D.A. Carson says, this verse does not forbid all judging of any kind. For moral distinctions drawn from the Sermon on the Mount require that decisive judgments be made. So in order to be able to decide if someone is probably doing something wrong, you have to have looked at them and thought, oh, that doesn't seem right. It does not say that Christians are to be amorphous, undiscerning blobs who never make any circumstance, never under any under circumstance hold any opinions about wrong, right and wrong ever. So we have to, right? But nevertheless, we can't do it in such a way that it's hypocritical. That's the point. So as we're seeing here in verses 11 and 12, there's worldly speech, godly speech. Worldly speech, speaking evil against your brother, condemning, etc. Godly speech, if you just want one verse, I think this is maybe the best. This is the one I make all my kids memorize whenever they say things mean to each other. Um, This is maybe one of the best places. If you're a parent and you have kids and they speak mean to each other, make them memorize this. Write this down. Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29. Write that down and make them memorize it. Every time they say something wrong towards their other sibling, make them write it 50 times on a piece of paper. Um, Anyway, Ephesians 4.29. If you want want a pattern of what godly speech looks like, all the kids are like, thanks a lot, bud. Uh, So here it is. Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So don't, don't have worldly speech. Instead, here's what your speech should look like. But only such as is good for building up. So when you speak, it needs to build other people up. It fits the occasion. It's appropriate in this particular place to say this. It fits the occasion. And that it may give grace to those who hear. 
as you say things, they should be filled with grace and filled with encouragement, not tearing down. So that's what godly speech looks like. That's just one place. There's tons of places that you can look. So um, worldly speech versus godly speech. Don't slander, don't condemn, etc. Instead, build up your brother and sister in Christ, etc. So as we're, as we're going through James 4, 11 and 12, uh, there's kind of like seven steps. These won't be on the screen, but seven kind of steps to follow James' line of thinking now. I'm just going to, uh, we've already gone through it kind of expositionally. I'm just going to rehearse these, these steps with you so you can see. One, don't speak evil against a brother. Don't do that. Two, when you speak evil against a brother, you make yourself the judge. And you should not do that. Um, and as we've seen, uh, for James, Calvin says, judging means speaking evil against a brother according to your own view of things, not God's. So, um, number three, so speaking evil against a brother makes you a judge. Number three, if one does this, they speak evil against the law and they speak against the law like they understand it better. And the law of God has already commanded us to love our brother and sister, uh, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And now as self-appointed judge, we feel like we don't have to obey it. We just have to make others obey it. That's, that's hypocritical. Fourth is this. If one judges the law, they don't do the law. They don't feel like they have to. Instead, uh, they have just become a judgment of it uh, and a judge of it. But number five, there's only one lawgiver and judge and it ain't me. <laughs> it ain't you, right? It's not us. We shouldn't say ain't, but um, it's not us, right? Instead, it's God. So number six, the lawgiver, God, is able to save us from the law and to destroy us with the law. One or the other, save you from the law or destroy you with the law. The law is good, but it was given to destroy us. And so he can also save us from the law. And that's only through Christ. Our only hope, as I said, is to look to Jesus. He actually saves us from the law because we have to obey it. No matter what, you have to obey it. So you can either try to obey it, which you can never do, or say, I'm going to let somebody else obey it for me. And that's Jesus. So I'm just going to say, Jesus, you come obey the law for me. And since he obeys it perfectly, it's not like you just control Jesus like that. But nevertheless, um, Jesus has obeyed it. And so you say, I'm going to say, my only hope is Christ. So he obeyed the law for us. The law killed us. But if we're in Christ, we've been made alive through Christ. So Paul says it this way for us in Romans chapter 7. When the law killed us and we needed to be made alive... After we were made alive, now we have um, things that we're supposed to do. We, the law killed us. We say our only hope is Christ. And now what do we do? Here, here they are. Here's, here's four, at least four. This, the Bible's full of them. But now that you've been made alive in Christ, here's at least four things that, that the Bible declares that Christ has done for you. Um, four reasons you've been made alive. You can see it in verse, chapter, Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So the first uh, reason that you've been made alive is, you can see it, you've died to the law, through the body of Christ, you may belong to, to, to another who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So the first reason you've been made alive after you've, the law killed you and you said you can't follow it, and now you're just going to say, all I want is Christ. The, the first reason he actually made you alive is so that you'll bear fruit for him. It's important that you understand. Matthew 7 tells us this. Ephesians 2.10 tells us this. And here's another place, Romans 7 and 4. If you're a believer in Christ, you have been made alive in order that you bear fruit for him. Bear fruit means do good works. 
There's another reason. Romans chapter 7 verse 6 says, But now we are released from the law. In other words, we don't have to keep it because Jesus has kept it for us. Having died to that which held us captive, that's the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Now we, we keep the law, but it's by the Spirit now uh, because he does it for us, not in the old way of the written code. So now... We, as it says, serve in the new way of the spirit. So the second reason you've been made alive is not just so that you bear fruit, but also that you serve in the life of the spirit. You've been made free from the law, been made alive through Christ so that you become a servant of other people. You serve by the power of the spirit, other people. You, you lower yourself as John, uh, Jesus did, puts on the towel and washes the disciples feet. And like he said, does in John. We are now servants, just like Jesus. So we bear fruit, we serve. The next one is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says this, But I, one, ver- one page over, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I now live in the, f- by f- in the life I live, I live in, in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So now, the third reason we've been made alive is to live by faith in Jesus. We constantly put our faith and all of our hope in Jesus, not in ourselves. The fourth one, and like I said, there's tons, but we're going to just stop here at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Another reason that you've been made alive. I love this verse right here. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I have so many, but this is one for sure. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. It says this, For the love of Christ controls us. That's not a bad thing. Don't view that as like bad. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that's Jesus, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live, might no longer live for themselves, but for their sake, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, Christ Jesus died on the cross so that you don't live for yourself anymore. You say, my life is not about me and what I want anymore. Instead, the person that died for me, that's who I live my life for. That's Jesus. Now, every decision I make, every choice I do, Every time I walk through this earth, every conversation I have, every person I talk with, I will not slander. Instead, I will, I will speak in such a way that honors Christ because I've been made alive for Christ's sake. So I, I am alive now to ju- not to judge, but instead to live for him, not for myself. So as we were going through those seven steps, there's only one lawgiver who's able to save. And it's, it's God. And he saved us to give us new life. So lastly... That's when he looks at us and says, then how can you then judge your neighbor? How can you judge your neighbor? You can't. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, ultimately, when it comes to is someone condemned or not, we're not the judge of that. The ultimate judge is God. And so the, the final say-so and the final judgment belongs to God. And so who are you to judge your neighbor when we're talking about the one who only can just uh, judgely judge? Just judgely? No. Justly judge. There we go. He's the only one that can do this. Those two start with J, man. It's hard to say that. You try. Anyway, so uh, the final judgment of condemnation or non-condemnation, that comes from God. And so who are you to do that? 
None of us are able to do that. Only he can. So we can't judge our neighbor when it comes to the final judgment. But in the same way, the non-hypocrite, when they're walking through sanctification with people that they love that are believers in Christ, the non-hypocrite that loves his brother and sister that's caught in sin, the non-hypocrite that wants their friend that's examined their own heart, removed sin from their life and wants to go to that person, the non-hypocrite will see that sin in their, in their friend's life, their brother and sister's life, and they'll go to them and they'll want them to be free from it. And Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 tells us exactly how to do that. So we're not talking about the ultimate final judgment that God has, but we do have to, when you're going to someone, made some kind of predetermination in your mind that someone's doing something wrong. And whenever you know that's happening and you're going to go to them, this is what it looks like. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, i.e., what we've been talking about the whole sermon, not a hypocrite, not someone who thinks they don't have to follow the law, but the one who is spiritual, redeemed by Jesus, walking with Jesus, being sanctified by Jesus, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we don't go as condemners. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not ours. We go as someone pleading and begging for them to return to Jesus. Our only hope is that they would be restored to unto Christ. And then he, he warns us. Because you who are spiritual can still fall into that same sin that they're doing, right? Easily. It can look enticing. And they're saying, but this is what I'm doing. And man, it's so fun. And it seems great. And you're looking at it and you're like, is that great? This is what he tells us. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's how this kind of judgment is done. And so, let's remind ourselves of the good news. Because as we've laid out these things, you can feel like there's lots of rules for you to keep. And that's not the point, right? The point is that you submit yourself totally unto Christ. Likewise, my brothers, you've died to the law. You don't have to keep the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. That's Romans 7, 4. Also Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captives so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We, we now have been freed from sin so that we serve others. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. We've confessed our sin. He's forgiven us our sin. And now we, because we've been forgiven, we love Christ with everything inside of us. And that love for Christ controls us to want to live for him. For now the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. That's Jesus. And therefore all have died because of Adam. And he died for all. That's Jesus. That those who might live that means be alive spiritually, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ Jesus did this for you. He went to the cross willingly so that you could be forgiven, so that you could live this kind of life that doesn't look at other people and say, you need to get your, 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 your act together. You need to do this. Or you slander them or you say pejorative things towards them and put yourself above the law. But instead you realize who you are in front of Christ as well. And you pursue holiness in your life and you love others and you care for them. You come alongside them, encourage them, but you also live a life of, of pursuing holiness and sanctification where you, as we saw in 313 through 18, we pursue wisdom, 
godly wisdom. As we saw in 4, 1 through 10, we pursue knowing God with everything inside of us. And here in 11 and 12, we pursue Christ-honoring, God-exalting speech in our lives. And you cannot do this on your own. You can only do this through Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this set of verses, even though it's seemingly complicated. I pray, Lord, that it was understandable this morning. Above anything, Lord, I pray that if people just remember, look to Christ. He's our only hope. That we, because of Jesus, have the ability to have godly speech and not worldly speech. And that we would cast all of our hope and all of our thoughts and all of our affections to Jesus. Thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Help us, God. Help us not run over people with our words. But instead, through Christ, because of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have godly speech towards them. We encourage them. We lift them up. We build them up. All of our speech fits the occasion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.